Hi, and welcome to another edition of the African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner, bringing you readings from Black Enterprise, The Amsterdam News, Tennessean.com, The Jamaica Gleaner, USA Today, Indian Country Today, The Associated Press, and TheUndefeated.com. This week's focus is on Black History Month. And the feature story is about historian Carter G. Woodson, the individual who started celebrating Afro-American history in February. The next story in today's program is from Tennessean.com. The title is, We Will Remain Strong, Southern HBCUs React to Spate of Bomb Threats. It was written by Andrew Yan, Todd Price, and Maria Clark, and was published February 2nd, 2022. It was still dark early Tuesday morning when Roderick Smothers, president of Philander Smith College in Little Rock, Arkansas, received dire news. Little Rock Police Department had received word of a bomb threat targeting Smothers University, a small historically black college that enrolls less than 1,000 students a semester in Arkansas's capital. The threat indicated that the bomb was to go off at 12 noon today, Smothers said in a phone interview Tuesday afternoon. Philander Smith College was one of more than a dozen historically black colleges and universities, HBCUs, known to have received bomb threats on Tuesday, the first day of Black History Month. No bombs were detonated Tuesday. The FBI arrived at Philander Smith by 8.30 a.m. Tuesday and had the campus swept by 10.30 a.m., Smothers said. Most of the HBCUs declared campuses cleared by Tuesday afternoon. Still, the start of a month intended to celebrate black Americans was marred by many HBCUs having to pivot to a day of virtual learning, and the scope of the threat sent shockwaves through the HBCU community. There is a level of ignorance and hatred that is tied to this racial awakening that is going on in our country, Smothers said. Education is a way to overcome those challenges. Largely Southern HBCUs targeted. The majority of the HBCUs targeted are located in the South. Xavier University of Louisiana, New Orleans, Louisiana, Arkansas Baptist College, Little Rock, Arkansas, Shorter College, North Little Rock, Arkansas, Spelman College, Atlanta, Georgia, Fort Valley State University, Fort Valley, Georgia, Alcorn State University, Lorman, Mississippi, Mississippi Valley State University, Itabina, Mississippi, Jackson State University, Jackson, Mississippi, Rust College, Holly Springs, Mississippi, and Tougaloo College near Jackson, Mississippi. Other universities targeted were Howard University, Washington, D.C., Morgan State University, Baltimore, Maryland, Kentucky State University, Frankfort, Kentucky, Edwards Waters University, Jacksonville, Florida, and Coppin State University, Baltimore, Maryland. This is the start of Black History Month, said Tiffany Perry, chief of staff for Rust College. While we don't know if the two are related in any way, it's just unfortunate that the education of African Americans continues to be a threat to some people in this country. But we will remain strong and steadfast as we always do in the face of adversity and continue on the business of educating the future leaders of tomorrow. The bomb threats were seemingly a continuation of a trend that began Monday when at least six HBCUs, including Howard University, which received two threats in two days, were forced to investigate campuses for possible explosives. Perry and Smothers said a group chat between HBCU presidents helped their schools prepare after the initial bomb threats were announced Monday. Our president was alerted by some of the other HBCU presidents that they had received threats. We did at that time inform our security team to be on high alert, Perry said. 
As a result, they were completely prepared to deal with this today when it happened on our campus. Tuesday's threats also came exactly four weeks after at least HHBCUs received bomb threats on January 4th. Highly unusual. When asked if threats were a common occurrence during or around Black History Month, HBCU leaders reached for interviews said they were unaware of similar threats being made in previous years. Larry Orman, vice president of marketing and communication for Alcorn State, called Tuesday's events highly unusual. A spokesman for the Little Rock Police Department said bomb threats to area universities were rare. A spokesperson for the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms and Explosives said they have no public data specific to bomb threats made to universities. As of Tuesday afternoon, no arrests had been announced. The FBI was leading the investigation due to the interstate nature of the threats. HBCUs were founded during a time in this country when African Americans and black and brown people could not go to other institutions to receive an education, Perry said. I hope this moment sheds light on the systemic and racial issues that still exist in this country where some people still, in 2022, would threaten the lives of these young people. There is one image that goes along with this story. It is a plaque. The words are in gold. The background is in black. It reads, Mississippi Freedom Trail, Rust College. In 1960, Rust College students, under the leadership of President E.A. Smith, boycotted the segregated Holly Theater, a protest that in 1962 evolved into a Rust chapter of the NAACP. The chapter offices were installed by Medgar Evers, NAACP field secretary. Members founded a speaker's bureau fostering voter education and registration, and in 1962, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee became active on the campus. In 1963, students were active in the Freedom Vote and later the formation of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party. That was the story, We Will Remain Strong, Southern HBCUs React to Spate of Bomb Threats. It's from Tennessean.com, was published February 2nd, 2022, and was written by Andrew Yan, Todd Price, and Maria Clark. The next story in today's program comes from IndianCountryToday.com. The title is, House Panel Promotes Ideas to Shrink Wealth Gap. The subtitle is, Disparities Create Obscene, Undemocratic, Dysfunctional Concentration of Wealth and Power, Especially by Race. It was written by Mark Trahant and was originally published January 20th, 2022. There's a story told about how we are defined by talent, taking what we have learned and building a successful career and path. The economic data shows something else. Families with wealth have a head start. This is certainly true in Indian country where studies have detailed that disparity, such as one that found American Indian and Alaska Native households have only eight cents of wealth for every dollar controlled by the average white American household. The wealth gap has been consistent, if nothing else. The U.S. House Select Committee on Race and Economic Disparity held a hearing Thursday that looked at the problem and explored potential solutions. What would the country look like if there was a level playing field? Communities of color tend to experience worse economic outcomes than their white counterparts. Race and ethnicity prove to be powerful predictors of educational attainment, labor market outcomes, lifetime earnings, economic mobility, and even life expectancy, the committee's pre-hearing memo reported. The government has made much progress, particularly over the past century, to end long-standing economic disparities, 
but there is still much to be done to fully live up to the framework laid out in the U.S. Constitution. Among those testifying to the committee Thursday was Derek Hamilton, the Henry Cohen Professor of Economics and Urban Policy and Director of the Institute for the Study of Race, Power, and Political Economy at the New School. Many Americans, and black and brown and indigenous families in particular, have low wealth, low income, inadequate health care, and work in precarious but essential jobs that have fewer workplace protections, lower wages, and fewer benefits, Hamilton said Thursday at the hearing. Indeed, the biggest pre-existing condition of the health and economic toll of this pandemic is wealth. Over the last half century, essentially all of our nation's productivity gains have gone to the elite and upper middle classes, while effectively flatlining real worker wages for everyone else, he said. This has resulted in an obscene, undemocratic, dysfunctional concentration of wealth and power, especially by race, that has not been seen since the Gilded Age. The economic evidence of that growing gap shows up in the difference between productivity and salaries. A report cited by Hamilton in his testimony explained that most of the time there is a parallel between productivity and higher wages. But since 1979, that has not been the case. Wages grew at only 17.5%, while productivity jumped 61.8%. Since the late 1970s, our policy choices have led directly to be a pronounced divergence between productivity and typical workers' pay. It doesn't have to be this way, Hamilton said. Our unjust racial wealth gap is itself an implicit measure of our racist past that is rooted in a history in which whites have been privileged by government complicit political and economic intervention that have afforded them access to resources and interrogative and intergenerational accumulation. This is in contrast to a history in which black and indigenous personhood and whatever capital and resources they may have established have been vulnerable to state complicit exploitation and extrapolating. Hamilton said there are policy courses that could mitigate that unfairness, especially by using the tax code to promote fairness. The refundable child tax credit could be a good start, but we could do better than cutting poverty in half. No one should live in poverty. It is immoral and cruel, he said. There's one photograph that goes along with this story. It is of a man sitting in a high back office chair looking directly into the camera. He's wearing a dark blue suit and a blue tie. He's wearing glasses and has a goatee. Over his right shoulder is a whiteboard. The caption reads, Derek Hamilton, Henry Cohen Professor of Economics and Urban Policy at the New School, testifies before the House Committee on Economic Disparity and Fairness in Growth. That was the story, House Panel Promotes Ideas to Shrink Wealth Gap. It was written by Mark Trahant and appeared in IndianCountryToday.com on January 20th, 2022. The next story in today's African American Hour comes from the Associated Press website, AP.com. It's titled, Supreme Court Takes Up Race in College Admissions. It was published January 24th, 2022 and was written by Colin Binkley. The Supreme Court has agreed to review a challenge to the consideration of race and college admission decisions, often known as affirmative action. With three new conservative justices on the court since its last review, the practice may be facing its greatest threat yet. The court said Monday it would consider a pair of lawsuits alleging that Harvard University and the University of North Carolina discriminate against Asian American applicants. The practice has been reviewed by the court several times over the past 40 years and has generally been upheld 
but with limits. A look at the case. When colleges sort through their applicants deciding which ones to admit, some consider race along with grades and a host of other factors like athletics and community service. Some schools have used the practice for decades as a way to address racial discrimination against black students and others who were long excluded from America's colleges. Today, supporters say it's an important tool that helps bring a diverse mix of students to campus, while opponents say it amounts to its own form of discrimination. Most colleges don't disclose whether they consider race, but the practice is believed to be limited to a small fraction of schools. Some estimates put it at a few hundred of the nation's 6,000 colleges, mostly at more selective colleges. Most states allow affirmative action, but nine have outlawed it, including California, Florida, and most recently Idaho, which banned it in 2020. The Supreme Court is taking up two lawsuits filed by Students for Fair Admissions, a Virginia-based group that says race should play no part in the admission process. The group is led by Edward Blum, a legal strategist who has spent years working to rid racial considerations from college admissions. In its lawsuits, the group argues that Harvard and the University of North Carolina intentionally discriminate against Asian-American applicants. Examining six years of data at Harvard, the group found that Asian-American applicants had the strongest academics but were admitted at the lowest rates compared to students of other races. It also found that Harvard's admissions officers gave Asian-Americans lower scores on a subjective personal rating designed to measure attributes such as likability and kindness. A federal judge in 2019 upheld Harvard's admissions practices saying it was not perfect but passed constitutional muster. The judge said race-conscious practices always penalize groups that don't get an advantage, but they're justified by the compelling interest in diversity on college campuses. An appeals court upheld the ruling in 2020. The group brought similar claims against UNC, saying its process disadvantages white and Asian-American students. A federal judge sided with the university last year. In its appeal to the Supreme Court, the group asked the panel to review both cases and also to overturn the court's 2003 decision in Grutter v. Bollinger, which upheld admissions policies at the University of Michigan's law school. That decision cleared colleges to consider race if it's done in a narrowly tailored way to serve a compelling interest. The group's appeal argued that the Grutter decision endorsed racial objectives that are amorphous and unmeasurable and thus incapable of narrow tailoring. Race-conscious policies have gone before the Supreme Court several times dating to the 1970s and have generally been upheld with some limits. Racial quotas that reserve a certain number of seats for minority students have been deemed unconstitutional. But the court has said colleges can consider race as long as it's one of many factors in the decision. Students' race can be used as a plus factor to give them an edge, but it can't be the defining factor, the court has said. Schools must be able to show they consider race in a narrowly tailored way and that there is no race-neutral approach that would meet the same objective of increasing student diversity. The court last examined affirmative action in 2016 when it upheld the admissions process at the University of Texas. That suit, also orchestrated by Blum, was filed by a white Texan who was denied admission to the university. The Trump administration sided with Blum in the Harvard case, saying in 2018 that the school's process may be infected with racial bias. The administration also rescinded an Obama-era policy encouraging schools to consider race, and it filed its own lawsuit accusing Yale University of discriminating against Asian Americans and white applicants. The Biden administration later dropped the Yale lawsuit and supported Harvard against Blum, urging the Supreme Court not to take up the case. 
Meanwhile, the court has shifted further to the right with three new conservative justices appointed by Trump. Affirmative action backers hope the court leaves things as they are, giving colleges flexibility to consider race within certain bounds. Opponents hope for a sweeping decision that would remove race from the admission process entirely. Eliminating the practice would send shockwaves across American higher education and leave many schools scrambling to find other ways to promote diversity. Some colleges say that without considering race, they would expect to see a decrease in their black student populations. Opponents say ending affirmative action would make the process fair, and some say colleges could preserve racial diversity by giving an edge to low-income students. Between both extremes are a wide range of possible options. The court could add further restrictions on the practice, for example, or it could raise the standard of proof colleges must meet to show they're within constitutional bounds. Blum welcomed the court's announcement, saying he hopes the justices will end racial considerations at all colleges. In a statement, he added that Harvard and UNC have racially gerrymandered their freshman classes in order to achieve prescribed racial quotas. Harvard President Lawrence Bacow, B-A-C-O-W, vowed to defend the school's use of race as one of many factors, saying it produces a more diverse student body, which strengthens the learning environment for all. Several groups representing students of color denounced the court's decision to get involved. NAACP Legal and Educational Defense Fund Director Sherilyn Eiffel said it threatens the nation's ideals of equality. In a statement, she said, Holistic race-conscious admissions processes mitigate systemic barriers to educational opportunities faced by many black students and other students of color, ensuring that all hardworking and qualified applicants receive due consideration. Some other groups applauded the news. Mike Zhao, Z-H-A-O, president of the Asian American Coalition for Education, said Americans should have equal opportunity to achieve success through hard work, determination, and initiative. It's time for the U.S. Supreme Court to step up to protect our constitutional rights, he said in a statement. There's one photograph that comes with this story. It's a picture of the top half of the front of the Supreme Court building. The roof is gold. It is trimmed in gold. There is an American flag in front on a flagpole with a statue of a small eagle on top. The caption reads, An American flag waves in front of the Supreme Court building on Capitol Hill in Washington on November 2, 2020. The Supreme Court on Monday agreed to review a challenge to its consideration of race in college admissions decisions, often known as affirmative action. The justices are taking up a pair of lawsuits alleging that Harvard University and the University of North Carolina discriminate against Asian American applicants. That was the story, Supreme Court Takes Up Race in College Admissions. It was written by Colin Binkley and appeared at the Associated Press website, AP.com, on January 24, 2022. Coming up next is today's feature story, which explains why the recognition of Afro-American history takes place in the month of February. It comes from the BlackEnterprise.com website, and it's titled, From Sharecropper to Scholar, How Carter G. Woodson Launched Negro History Week in February. It was written by Charlene Reinhardt and was originally published February 7, 2021. Dr. Carter G. Woodson launched Negro History Week on February 7, 1926. It is the foundation for the Black History Month celebration that we embrace today. 
History shows that it does not matter who is in power or what revolutionary forces take over the government. Those who have not learned to do for themselves and have to depend solely on others never obtain any more rights or privileges in the end than they had in the beginning, Woodson wrote in The Miseducation of the Negro. Woodson was an accomplished journalist, historian, and author. Woodson was born the son of freed slaves on December 19, 1875, in New Canton, Virginia. Growing up in the late 19th century, Woodson witnessed the impact of limited educational and employment opportunities. He and his family moved to West Virginia, found income-producing work, and started saving their money to create a better life. By age 20, Woodson's work as a coal miner earned him enough savings to help him pursue formal education. Woodson's educational pursuits paid off. He taught himself English and math and proceeded to graduate from Berea College in 1903 and earn a master's degree in history from the University of Chicago. In 1912, Woodson made history as the second African-American to obtain a Ph.D. from Harvard University. This was the beginning of a lifelong commitment to preserving, researching and sharing the untold stories of black trailblazers. According to the NAACP, Woodson and a group of friends in Chicago created the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History in 1915. He sought to provide young people with valuable history lessons and education. Dr. Woodson went on to share the importance of thought leadership and freedom in The Miseducation of the Negro. When you control a man's thinking, you do not have to worry about his actions. You do not have to tell him not to stand here or go yonder. He will find his proper alliance and will stay in it. You do not need to send him to the back door. He will go without being told. In fact, if there is no back door, he will cut one for a special benefit. His education makes it necessary. In 1926, Whitson dedicated the second week of February to a universal sharing of black history. This period, known as Negro History Week, was the foundation for the birth of Black History Month in 1976. It also coincides with the birthdays of Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln, two men who played a role in abolishing slavery. Woodson's home is a national historic site in Washington, D.C. The home captures the essence of Woodson's work preserving and celebrating Black history. According to the National Parks Conservation Association, this is where Woodson institutionalized the study of black history from 1915 until his death in 1950. It was where Woodson managed the Associated Publishers Publishing Company, the Association for the Study of Negro Life and History, and Negro History Week. Woodson left something behind that can transform the lives of generations of black people. Woodson, known by many as the father of black history, once said, If a race has no history, it has no worthwhile tradition it becomes a negligible factor in the thought of the world and it stands in danger of being exterminated. There is one black and white photograph that goes along with this story. It is a portrait of Dr. Carter G. Whitson wearing a suit and tie. The caption simply reads, Dr. Carter G. Whitson. That was today's feature story. From sharecropper to scholar, how Carter G. Woodson launched Negro History Week in February. It was written by Charlene Reinhardt and originally appeared at the blackenterprise.com website on February 7, 2021. Next in today's program is a story from the New York Amsterdam News. The title is, at 113, NAACP evolves for relevance on racial justice agenda. It was written by Aaron Morrison 
and appeared January 20, 2022. As the NAACP turns 113, look for its voice to grow louder on issues like climate change, the student debt crisis, and the ongoing response to the coronavirus pandemic, while keeping voting rights and criminal justice reform at the forefront of its priorities. The nation's oldest civil rights organization's birthday next month comes as it undergoes a restructuring to reflect a membership and leadership that is trending younger to people in their mid-30s. As a result, it is adding endeavors like producing TV streaming content for CBS. The hope is that younger Americans see the NAACP has modernized beyond being grandma and grandpa's go-to civil rights hub, good for much more than voter registration drives and the star-studded image awards. We had to reinvigorate the organization, National President Derek Johnson, 53, told the Associated Press. The changes that we have seen are absolutely necessary for the organization to exist for the next 112 or 113 years, he added. But more importantly, we are more targeted in our work and are driven by outcomes as opposed to output. The NAACP's legacy includes the legal desegregation of schools and workplaces, crusades against lynching and racial terrorism in pursuit of socioeconomic advancement for black Americans. It commands the respect of U.S. presidents and Capitol Hill power brokers, confers with U.N. diplomats on global issues, and trains future leaders through its network of thousands of state and local branches. But in periods of NAACP history, when it found itself embroiled in financial hardship and internal power struggles, the group appeared ineffective or even irrelevant. Past critics have said the NAACP was insular, too concerned with corporate funding, and not nearly nimble or progressive enough for the times. The best of the NAACP is when it fought for change, not as a payback for black people voting for a candidate, but because the change was demanded by the promises of the Constitution, the demands of human rights, and the sound morality of our deepest religious traditions, said the Reverend William Barber II, who led the North Carolina NAACP from 2006 to 2017, before resigning to become co-chair of the Poor People's Campaign. Right now, the NAACP should be leaning to its better history, Barbara told the Associated Press. A revamped brain trust within its leadership is helping to better meet the needs of its membership, said NAACP Chief Strategy Officer Yumika Rushing, capital Y-U-M-E-K-A, during a December national staff retreat, roughly half of those in attendance had come on board in the prior 12 months. There is not another organization like us in terms of the footprint that we have around the country, Rushing said. The restructuring happened at a time when the country needed us the most to stand up and speak to the issues. Johnson said there is no issue more important to the NAACP than the fight to enhance voter protections. With the Senate missing this week's Martin Luther King Day deadline to pass Democratic-backed legislation, the NAACP president issued a grave warning to lawmakers of both parties. Anything short of protecting the right to vote is a death sentence for democracy. The fight is far from over, Johnson said, after a Wednesday night Senate vote. Johnson told the Associated Press the organization's strategy on voting rights isn't just about preserving black voters' influence in national elections. Following the release of 2020 census data, the NAACP has filed lawsuits against state redistricting plans in Texas, Georgia, and Illinois that would limit voters' choices in elections. It's more about having a true representative democracy, he said. Until about a decade ago, it had been easier to find bipartisan support for voter protection measures. 
In a 2006 speech to the NAACP's National Convention in Washington, former Republican President George W. Bush affirmed his support for Congress's reauthorization of the Landmark Voting Rights Act of 1965. President Lyndon Johnson called the right to vote the lifeblood of our democracy, Bush said. That was true then, and it remains true today. Paris Denard, a spokesman for the Republican National Committee, said the NAACP and the GOP have historically been aligned on several civil rights issues, including criminal justice reform, election integrity, and financial support for historically black colleges and universities. The NAACP is supposed to be nonpartisan, so we're always seeking areas of alignment on a host of issues, Denard said. Founded on February 12, 1909, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People was formed as the nation struggled to build a post-abolition multiracial democracy amid violence against black people. Its white founders, a group of activists and journalists that included Henry Moskowitz, Mary White Ovington, and William English Walling, joined with like-minded black activists, W.E.B. Du Bois, Mary Church Terrell, and Ida B. Wells, the noted journalists who investigated lynching in America. The NAACP Legal Defense and Educational Fund, founded as a part of the NAACP in 1940, litigated the landmark Supreme Court case Brown v. Board of Education, mandating the desegregation of public schools in 1954, as well as a case permitting affirmative action in college admissions decades later. In 1957, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund became a separate entity. Today, the NAACP has more than 2,200 branches, including in colleges and prisons, and 2.2 million members. Even amid the rise in popularity of the Black Lives Matter movement, youth membership jumped significantly from 12,000 in 2019 to more than 17,000 by the end of 2020, according to Wisdom Cole, the NAACP's Youth and College Division Director. The NAACP continues to be the preeminent civil rights organization in the country, said Randall Maurice Jokes, professor of African and African American Studies at the University of Kansas. It set up a bureaucracy to be able to handle the ongoing critical changes that we face. When other organizations have burned out, the NAACP is well-positioned to endure, Jokes said, and that is to the credit of its initial organizers. The NAACP operates two C3 nonprofits and two C4 nonprofits, as well as a for-profit arm. Its Hollywood Bureau pursues representation and equity issues across the entertainment industry, while its Legislative and Policy Bureau in Washington lobbies lawmakers on NAACP priorities. A full-service law firm, staffed with seven attorneys, works with a network of lawyers across the country allowing the organization to litigate between 30 and 50 cases at any given time. With tens of millions of dollars in assets across its entities as of 2020, Johnson said the NAACP's finances are healthier than at any time in its existence. Johnson said his involvement with the NAACP began in 1990. Until his 2017 appointment as president and CEO, he volunteered in his home state of Mississippi in a number of capacities, including a state conference president. His elevation to leadership has not been without challenges. In 2020, a former North Carolina NAACP official filed a $15 million lawsuit against the national organization after she accused her boss of sexual harassment and NAACP leadership of inaction. The NAACP declined comments citing the ongoing litigation. 
Johnson told the Associated Press he has grown as a leader by relying on the wisdom of the organization's elders and the counsel of its young people. I have been able to apply lessons learned, good and bad, Johnson said. As I navigate in this moment, I see the relations built over time are now coming full circle. He has fans within the Biden administration. President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris are longstanding NAACP members who work closely with the organization to advance their shared commitment to equal rights, a White House official said. Housing and Urban Development Secretary Marsha Fudge, also a lifetime NAACP member, credits Johnson's leadership for the group's continued influence in national policy debates. If he doesn't have a seat at the table, he brings one, Fudge told the Associated Press. He makes himself relevant by going to the tables where he may not have been invited. There's one photograph that comes with this story. There is no caption to it. It shows the president of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, Derek Johnson, standing in front of the organization's symbol. He's wearing a brown suit, and he has on a lapel pin. That's the story. At 113, NAACP evolves for relevance on racial justice agenda. It appeared in the New York Amsterdam News on January 20th, 2022, and was written by Aaron Morrison. The next story for today is from the USA Today newspaper and its usatoday.com website. The title is, Maya Angelou Coins Distributed by U.S. Mint Make Her First Black Woman to Appear on Quarters. It was written by Jordan Mendoz and was published January 11th, 2022. The U.S. Mint has announced it has begun shipping out the first quarters featuring trailblazing American women, beginning with poet, writer, and activist Maya Angelou, the first black woman to appear on the quarter. Part of the American Women Quarters program, the Angelou coin is one of four expected to be shipped this year through 2025. George Washington's likeness remains on one side, while the other will have the honored women. The women that will be featured include Wilma Mankiller, the Cherokee Nation's first female principal chief, Anna Mae Wong, the first Chinese-American Hollywood film star, Adelina Otero Warren, a leader in New Mexico's suffrage movement, and Sally Ride, an astronaut and physicist who was the first American woman in space. Angelou is depicted on the coin with her arms uplifted. Behind her are a bird and the rising sun, which are inspired by her poetry and symbolic of the way she lived. It is my honor to present our nation's first circulating coins dedicated to celebrating American women and their contributions to American history, Mint Deputy Director Ventress C. Gibson said in a news release. Each 2022 quarter is designed to reflect the breadth and depth of accomplishments being celebrated throughout this historic coin program. Maya Angelou, featured on the reverse of this first coin in the series, uses words to inspire and uplift. The push for the coin program started in 2017 with the support of U.S. Representative Barbara Lee. Lee drafted legislation with help from Rosa Gumatao-Tao-Rios, capital G-U-M-A-T-A-O-T-A-O, capital R-I-O-S, a Treasury official who oversaw the U.S. Mint under President Barack Obama. Lee created the Circulating Collectible Coin Redesign Act with two Republicans, U.S. Representative Anthony Gonzalez of Ohio and Senator Deb Fisher of Nebraska. It was signed into law in 2020, and the public was able to nominate potential honorees last year. 
Angelou, who died in 2014 at age 86, rose to national prominence with her 1969 debut memoir, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. She was widely recognized as part of the civil rights movement, working alongside Martin Luther King. The poet made history as the first black poet to write and read a poem at a presidential inauguration when she read On the Pulse of the Morning at President Bill Clinton's first inauguration in 1993. She was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, one of the highest civilian awards in the United States in 2011 by then-President Barack Obama. As a leader in the civil rights movement, poet laureate, college professor, Broadway actress, dancer, and the first female African-American cable car conductor in San Francisco, Maya Angelou's brilliance and artistry inspired generations of Americans, Lee said. If you find yourself holding a Maya Angelou quarter, may you be reminded of her words. Be certain that you do not die without having done something wonderful for humanity. USA Today has reached out to the U.S. Mint on how people can obtain the quarters. While Angelou is the first black woman to appear on the quarter, for years there has been a push to put more black women on U.S. currency. Abolitionist Harriet Tubman, who rescued about 70 enslaved people through the Underground Railroad, was proposed to replace Andrew Jackson, who owned enslaved people, on the $20 bill. The movement began during the Obama administration, but was delayed by former President Donald Trump, who called the move pure political correctness. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, capital P-S-A-K-I, said shortly after President Joe Biden's inauguration in 2020 that the Treasury Department was looking at ways to speed up the process, according to the New York Times. However, the Washington Post reported Tubman might not be on a bill before the end of his term or a potential second term. There are two images that accompany this story. The first is a picture of Maya Angelou standing at a podium giving a speech. The subtitle says, Maya Angelou coins distributed by U.S. Mint make her first black woman to appear on quarters. The second image that goes with the story is of the quarter itself. It shows Maya Angelou with her arms outstretched and behind her are images of a bird and a rising sun. The subtitle says, Maya Angelou is seen on one of the new designs for the American women quarters. That was the story titled, Maya Angelou Coins Distributed by U.S. Mint Make Her First Black Woman to Appear on Quarters. It was written by Jordan Mendoza and was originally published January 11, 2022 in USA Today. Next up on today's program is an op-ed piece from the Jamaica Gleaner. The title is, Time Has Come for Garvey's Posthumous Exoneration. It was written by P.J. Patterson and was published January 15th, 2022. As we join in the observation of Martin Luther King Day on Monday, January 17th, the P.J. Patterson Center for African-Caribbean Advocacy adds his voice to the call once again for the posthumous exoneration of the right excellent Marcus Garvey. No one has devoted more of his life to the fight for freedom from the scourge of racism or written with greater clarity to inspire those who seek no more than the right for the dignity of each and every human being despite the color of one's skin than the right excellent Marcus Messiah Garvey. Martin Luther King eloquently expressed the significance of Marcus Garvey when he stated, Marcus Garvey was the first man of color in the history of the United States to lead and develop a mass movement. He was the first man, on a mass scale and level, to give millions of Negroes a sense of dignity and destiny and make the Negro feel that he was somebody. 
He gave to the millions of Negroes in the United States a sense of personhood, a sense of manhood, and a sense of somebodiness. That God's black children are just as significant as his white children. The year 2022 marks 100 years since Marcus Garvey was unjustly charged for mail fraud and was later imprisoned and deported from the United States in 1927. The criminal charge of using the mail to defraud was made against four officers of the Universal Negro Improvement Association, UNIA, one of whom had lied about the purchases of a ship when negotiations had broken down. It was in promoting shares for one of the Black Star Line ships, the purpose of which had not yet been finalized, that in 1922, Garvey alone was charged with mail fraud. He was sentenced to five years in prison in 1925. His sentence was commuted by President Calvin Coolidge in 1927 on the advice of Attorney General John Sargent, who was critical of J. Edgar Hoover's investigative tactics. But the goal of getting Marcus Garvey out of the United States was achieved. Legal scholars have analyzed the trial and demonstrated the abuse of justice in this case by the judge, who was known to be deeply hostile to Garvey, and the principal witness, a 19-year-old temporary employee who committed perjury. The trial by an all-white jury reflected the systemic racial bias of the justice system and followed a pattern of punitive measures against Marcus Garvey. Garvey was the target of an assassination attempt in 1919. In 1921, before his return to the United States, after a successful trip through Central America and the Caribbean on a Black Star Line ship, he was denied a visa to re-enter the U.S. The visa was granted only after protests were made. J. Edgar Hoover employed Black Secret Service agents to build a case to expel Garvey from the United States. A case was made against Garvey for breaking an immorality statute while traveling with his secretary, Amy Jacques, to whom he was not yet married. He was also charged unsuccessfully with income tax violations. Marcus Garvey was a Jamaica-born activist who had a decisive impact on the struggle for racial equality and civil rights in the United States and Europe and the decolonization in Africa, Latin America, and the Caribbean. It is for this reason that the Jamaican government chose him as the country's national hero in 1969. Garvey's work during the first four decades of the 20th century had a global impact. Kwame Nkrumah of Ghana, subsequent leaders of independent African countries and international statesmen of renown have attested to the value of his imprint on their intellectual emancipation from the perils of mental slavery and social inequity. On the cusp of Black History Month this February, we must not fail to recognize how Garvey kindled the candle of pride in our social heritage. It can be traced to the convention of the Universal Negro Improvement Association and African Communities League he organized in Madison Square Garden in 1920. Garvey brought together delegates from many parts of the world and they developed the Declaration of Rights of the Negro Peoples, a pioneering document for racial justice and human rights. The organization sunk roots in 38 states and garnered the support of the black population, especially in the southern states. Garvey's philosophy and teachings continue to inspire in the United States. The red, black, and green flag of the UNIA was to be seen in demonstrations of the Black Lives Matter movement in 2020, particularly after the televised murder of George Floyd. The impact of the Black Lives Matter movement and the mobilization which followed played an important part in the election of President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris, who condemned the murder of George Floyd and systemic racism. The center confidently expects that our heads of government will, as they readily did on the previous appeal, reiterate their endorsement of the posthumous exoneration of the right excellent Marcus Garvey in a letter now addressed directly to President Joseph Biden. 
The center joins in the global campaign to reverse the travesty of justice against a giant whose only crime was to give legendary leadership in the struggle against racial and economic injustice. Let our voices be heard loud and strong on the continent, across the Caribbean Sea, and throughout our diaspora as one in the plea for the tenets of justice demanded. That was the op-ed piece, Time Has Come for Garvey's Posthumous Exoneration, it was published in the Jamaica Gleaner on January 15, 2022, and was written by P.J. Patterson. Next up is a story from the Associated Press website, AP.com. The title is, Sanford and Son at 50, Double-Edged Black Sitcom Pioneer. It was written by Lynn Elber and was originally published January 20, 2022. When Desmond Wilson heard that Red Fox was going to star in a TV sitcom, the actor brushed it off as a joke. Fox was a killer stand-up comic, with a trademark raunchiness that Wilson figured to be a non-starter for the timid broadcast networks that were television in 1972. It was the eve of cable, and the rise of streaming was decades away. It would be like bringing a dog to a cat party, is how Wilson described the notion of Fox invading TV in a recent Associated Press interview. But the comedian cleaned up his act for the small screen in Sanford and Son, with Wilson co-starring as Fox's beleaguered adult son debuted 50 years ago this month on NBC. An instant rating smash, it opened the door for other black family shows to move into the virtually all-white TV neighborhood. Norman Lear, who had Royal Networked Waters the year before with a topically driven CBS sitcom All in the Family, said serendipity led to Sanford and Son. Lear and Bud York and his producing partner were in Las Vegas when they caught a lounge act featuring Fox. We met with him and came back to L.A. sky high about creating a Fox-centered sitcom, Lear said in an email exchange. Miraculously, several days later, a British agent, Burl Vertu, B-E-R-Y-L-V-E-R-T-U-E, came to us with the idea of making an American version of a big hit in Great Britain entitled Steptoe and Son. It was an instant marriage, Lear said, and one he says Fox didn't resist. Not that he wasn't difficult to deal with, but he was funny as hell and that made everything possible, Lear said. Fox, who died in 1991 at age 68, skipped part of one season amid a contract dispute with the producers. Sanford and Son, which aired from 1972 to 77, revolved around widower Fred Sanford, an irascible junk dealer in the Watts area of L.A. who foisted work and insults on his long-suffering son Lamont. Among them, You Big Dummy, which became a show catchphrase. All episodes are on Amazon Prime Video, which licensed the series for streaming from Sony Pictures Television. Wilson, a Vietnam veteran who had appeared on stage in New York in films and on TV, was approached about the series after an all-in-the-family guest role. Wilson also learned that the producers had another possibility in mind to play Lamont. We were considering Richard Pryor, Wilson recalled being told. I said, come on, you can't put a comedian with a comedian. You've got to have a straight man. Dick Martin was the nut. Dan Rowan was the straight guy on Rowan and Martin's Laugh-In, he said. Wilson recounted joining Lear in Las Vegas to meet Fox and watch his act. I thought he was the funniest person, the most irreverently funny guy that I'd ever met in my life, he said. Sanford and Son introduced viewers to other talented actors and comics generally sidelined by Hollywood because of their race, including cast members LaWanda Page as Aunt Esther, Whitman Mayo as Grady Wilson, Dan Bexley as Bubba, 
and Lynn Hamilton as Fox's good-natured girlfriend, Donna. Slappy White, who'd worked the comedy circuit with Fox, appeared occasionally on the series, as did Pat Morita, a future The Karate Kid movie fame, whose character's name, Ah Chu, and his ethnicity were punchlines for Fred. While Sanford and Son regularly delivered such racial barbs, it rarely delved into racism or other third-rail issues, politics and abortion among them, that were central to All in the Family and its spinoff mod. Was that deliberate? Yes, we didn't compare All in the Family and Sanford and Son, but the characters called it like they saw it in their own neighborhoods, Lear said in an email. The show begat other sitcoms about working-class black families, including Good Times, also involving Lear and starring Esther Roll and John Amos, and the less successful What's Happening from Yorkin, who died in 2015. Lear's The Jeffersons was rare in featuring an affluent black couple. While black viewers finally got to see a version of themselves on screen, it was mostly one limited to those in struggling neighborhoods and created by almost uniformly white producers, writers, and directors at the behest of white executives. That's in sharp contrast to the 21st century comedies created and steered by black writers, producers, and actors, including ABC's Blackish, HBO's Insecure, and FX's Atlanta and their wide-ranging and nuanced views of black life. Eric Deggins, TV critic for National Public Radio, sees a double-edged quality to the older generation sitcoms. They showcase performers beloved by black audiences and starting with Sanford and Son proved that a series about a family of color could be widely successful. The comedies also were honest about depicting some real-life black challenges, Deggins said, but they ultimately relied on racial stereotypes and settled for laughs. The shows made poor areas look livable and even fun as opposed to the issues that they really faced, Degan said. There are two black and white photos that go along with this story. One is of Red Fox being interviewed, and the other is of his co-star, Desmond Wilson, sitting in a chair. There are no captions to these photographs. That was the story. Sanford and Son at 50, double-edged black sitcom pioneer. It appeared in the Associated Press's AP.com website on January 20th, 2022, and was written by Lynn Elber. The next story in today's program is from the Undefeated.com website. The title is, The NFL Merry-Go-Round for Black Coaches is an Embarrassment that Must End. The subtitle is, Pittsburgh's Mike Tomlin is now the only black NFL head coach. It was written by William C. Roden and appeared on the website January 20th, 2022. I have been intrigued by the NFL playoffs and fascinated by the league-sponsored commercials that feature African-Americans speaking about the need for equal access and social justice. The irony of the commercials is that one of the great injustices is taking place within the very league that supports these messages. I'm talking about the NFL's chronic failure to consistently hire African-Americans as head coaches. This failing illuminates the league's enormous challenge as it assumes the daunting task of leveling the playing field when it comes to hiring black coaches. The task involves overcoming decades of systemic racism, exclusion, entitlement, and privilege. As the new hiring cycle begins and teams look to fill eight coaching vacancies, the NFL has hit a new low. Only one of the league's 32 teams has a black head coach. I have written about this issue for decades and compared notes with colleagues. The names have changed, but the system has not. Indeed, covering the NFL's racial blind spot has become an annual ritual, 
one that highlights the League's unique ability to compartmentalize. It can support social justice initiatives even as it maintains a strict, predominantly white hierarchy that runs the league. The reality is that the NFL's coaching cycle is like a merry-go-round. If the pattern holds to form, one, two, maybe three black coaches will be hired during the current hiring cycle. In a future cycle, the number may go up to seven. Then in a few years, the number will shrink to three or four. In the meantime, there will be numerous conversations and committees bringing owners and players together to solve every problem but their own. There are myriad complex dimensions to the hiring issue, but it boils down to white owners and executives refusing to tap into an ever-expanding black talent pool. Instead, they hire men who look like them and with whom they feel comfortable. Meanwhile, the teams make one mistake after another, and getting it wrong costs money. According to a former NFL executive, Fail hires cost the league an estimated $100 million a year in salaries that must be paid. The Urban Meyer debacle in Jacksonville cost the organization an estimated $60 million. That number will likely increase with the latest rash of firings. So how do we stop this merry-go-round, dismantle the contraption, and put it out of commission? Eventually, this will happen. My sense of optimism that things will change is rooted in the fact that the NFL used to be this way with black players. The league excluded African-American players for decades, then kept their numbers in check by enforcing racial quotas. You couldn't tell any of this by looking at the NFL in 2022, where between 69 and 70 percent of the players are black. That's an extraordinary evolution, one brought about by need. The critical question is, what do these percentages really mean? When will black athletes who make up this majority play a more forceful role in changing the league's hiring narrative? We saw in 2016 and 2017, when players took to kneeling and raising their fists, how much team owners hated to be embarrassed and publicly shamed. They scrambled to put out the fire. There's something to be said for unified player power. I'll use an example from the college ranks. Last month, Notre Dame players all but forced the university to fill its head coaching vacancy with Marcus Freeman, then the team's defensive coordinator. Freeman is African-American. According to several reports, Jack Swarbrick, the Notre Dame athletic director, had no intention of hiring Freeman when he began the search process. Swarbrick met with team captains simply to keep them in the loop and was surprised by how strongly they advocated for Freeman. After meeting with the larger team leadership group, which also strongly advocated for Freeman, Swarbrick, so the story goes, left the meeting believing that he could not hire another candidate and expect to keep the peace. If college athletes can force the issue, why can't NFL players back by the muscle of a players association? One reason is that DeMaurice Smith, the outgoing executive director of the NFL Players Association, has refused to mobilize the league's black players around hiring issues with a persistence that borders on treason. The other reality is that while most of the players are black, a significantly smaller number of them care enough to take action. And, as a practical matter, most black players in the NFL never played for a blackhead coach in college. White coaches, black players, is the norm. Putting more African Americans in positions of power and authority might also change the hiring dynamic. Once again, I'll use the college ranks as an example. Last month, the University of Virginia announced that Tony Elliott, the former Clemson offensive coordinator, would be its new head football coach. Elliott, who had been passed over numerous times for head coaching jobs, was championed by Carla Williams, UVA's athletic director. Williams is a pioneer in her own right. 
In 2017, she became the first African-American female athletic director at a Power 5 school. Williams hired Elliott because he's talented. She was also not afraid to take a chance to give a black candidate the benefit of the doubt. Of course, a black person in power is no guarantee. The NFL has seven black general managers. One of them, Chris Greer of the Miami Dolphins, fired his blackhead coach Brian Flores in an apparent clash of personalities. The NFL should consider supplementing the long-standing Rooney rule with a nepotism cronyism rule. I realize this is difficult in a mostly family-run business. According to the NFL's 2021 Diversity and Inclusion Report, at least one in seven NFL coaches in a supervisory non-entry-level position is related to a current or former NFL coach. At the time of the report, 10 of the league's 32 head coaches were related to a current or former coach. Of the 73 coaches that are related to another coach or former coach, 55 are white. Nepotism is not an entirely white affair, but in a league where 75% of the coaches are white, the long-term effect of nepotism and cronyism can have a devastating impact on the hiring of African-American head coaches. All of this adds up to a steep mountain to climb for the NFL. I appreciate the NFL's social justice commercials and the sentiment behind them, but while the league has embraced social justice as an initiative and as an impressive brand halo, what remains to be seen is how vigorously the league achieves justice in its own backyard. There's one photograph that goes along with this story. It is of a bearded Pittsburgh Steelers head coach Mike Tomlin wearing a gray sweater and a black jacket and a black skull cap. The caption to the photo says, Pittsburgh Steelers head coach Mike Tomlin on the sideline during an AFC wildcard playoff game against the Kansas City Chiefs on January 16th. That was the story. The NFL merry-go-round for black coaches is an embarrassment that must end. It appeared in the Undefeated.com website on January 20th, 2022, and was written by William C. Roden. That's all the time we have for the African American Hour. My name is Byron Buckner. Rose will be back next week. Thanks for joining me.